I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, July 11th, is the anniversary of the duel in which Alexander Hamilton was fatally shot by Vice President Aaron Burr in 1804. On today's episode, we pick up where the musical Hamilton left off and explore what happened to Vice President Burr after the duel. Why wasn't he prosecuted until after he left office in 1807? And what relevance does his treason trial have for executive privilege and indictments of executive officials today? We're thrilled that joining us here in studio in Philadelphia at the National Constitution Center are two of America's leading scholars of the Constitution, of Aaron Burr, and of American history to explore these fascinating questions. Nancy Eisenberg is T. Harry Williams, professor of history at Louisiana State University. She is the author of Fallen Founder, The Life of Aaron Burr, as well as many other acclaimed books, including the 2016 bestseller White Trash, and also her latest book, co-authored with Andrew Burstein, who's also here with us in studio, is The Problem of Democracy, The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. Nancy, it is wonderful to have you here at the NCC. Well, thank you. I enjoyed the last podcast that we did together. It's great to have you back. And another returning champion and great friend of the Constitution Center, Kevin C. Walsh, is professor of law at the University of Richmond School of Law. He is also president of the John Marshall Foundation, which produced the play King of Crimes about the Burr trial. Uh, the King of Crimes was filmed and televised on PBS. And Kevin, thank you so much also for advising us for the Constitution Center's exhibit about the constitutional legacy of John Marshall. It is wonderful to have you back, as always. Well, thank you, Jeff. Great. Well, let us begin where the musical left off. Uh, Aaron Burr uh, kills Alexander Hamilton. His term as vice president expires. He's heavily in debt at the time of his forced retirement from politics, and he heads out west on some suspicious business ventures that lead to his treason indictment. Nancy, tell us what he was doing out west and what happened to him that got him into so much trouble. Well, before he went out west, I mean, one of the, the jokes that he made, uh, he wrote to his uh, daughter, he said um, that New York and New Jersey were battling to, to determine which shall have the honor of hanging the vice president. Um, and that's because there were indictments, both the state of New Jersey and the state of New York indicted him for murder. Um, and on top of that, what's interesting is that dueling was legal in New Jersey. This is why everyone from New York went over to Weehawken to engage in duels. And in fact, in New York, even though they had an anti-dueling law, essentially no one had ever been prosecuted. Um, and Henry Brockholst Livingston, who would end up on the Supreme Court, killed a man in a duel in New York in 1798 and was never prosecuted. So Burr was uh, concerned. The governor of New York was not willing to, uh, did not want to press charges. Uh, but he didn't wait for the coroner's report and decided to, you know, get out of New York because his second uh, went into hiding. Two of his friends had been arrested. Uh, and he ended up going to Philadelphia and staying with his good friend Charles Biddle. <laughs> who was, you know, a relative of Nicholas Biddle. Um, and then he ended up going down to Washington, and as many people thought was kind of, at, at first, many Hamilton supporters were shocked that he was presiding over the Samuel Chase impeachment trial. But in fact, at the end of that, they ended up praising him as one of the, the greatest presiding witnesses, greatest, greatest presiding officers that they had ever seen, because he handled the impeachment by being fair and impartial, including all of the senators, if there was a point of law to be debated. Um, and even though Jefferson had want, wanted Samuel Chase uh, to be charged with sedition, um, and the impeachment vote had gone in that direction, by the end, he was uh, not, he was acquitted um, of impeachment. And Kevin, at some point after presiding over the Chase trial, Burr headed out west on business ventures, according to the Burr conspiracy on the Senate website. Uh, his most ambitious scheme was contingent on the outbreak of war with Spain, still in position, possession of the West. 
Burr planned an assault on Mexico and anticipated the Western states would leave the Union to join in a southeastern confederacy under his leadership. Tell us more about what he had in mind and why it got him into legal jeopardy. Well, if we could know exactly what he had in mind, uh, it would be a less interesting story because part of the treason trial that eventuates is what was he trying to do? Uh, so after he leaves the, uh, the, the Capitol, gives his farewell address, it causes people to, to tear up. Uh, and, 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 and then he kind of goes out west and he is traveling down the Ohio River and Mississippi River. And what is he doing? He's meeting with politicians. He's meeting with different people. He's gauging attachment to the union. He's gauging uh, people's sympathies. Uh, he is developing connections. So he'll meet uh, a young lawyer named Andrew Jackson, for example, uh, during this time. And, and he's, he was just a man of action, very charismatic. Uh, and, and so he's developing uh, some, some sort of followers. It's not clear uh, what he was doing. Doing. It, 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 he may have been um, putting together a, uh, a group to, to uh, take on Mexico if there had been war with Spanish, then take opportunity to march on Mexico. He may have been trying to uh, separate the, the, the uh, territories beyond the Alleghenies um, from the Union. Um, we're not really sure. We do know, though, uh, that Jefferson was aware of the different things that he was doing. He wasn't sure of it because, remember, this is a guy without a real job at that point. And, and, and he is trying perhaps to get an appointment from Jefferson. Uh, he's maybe going to be chief justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. He's, he's, he's sensing different things, seeing where fortune uh, would take him. And, but what he's doing is suspicious enough that a Federalist district attorney – uh, so Federalist being the, uh, the party that's different from the Jeffersonian Republicans, there's a Federalist district attorney uh, who instigates grand jury proceedings against him uh, because uh, this, it's a, you're not allowed to start wars with countries that we're at peace with. And, and one of the things that he's trying to get him on is a violation of the Neutrality Act. Uh, and those grand jury proceedings go nowhere. Um, so we don't know exactly what he was thinking. Um, another thing that's worth knowing uh, is that at the same time, he was dealing with both the foreign minister of Britain and of Spain. Uh, he's playing them against each other. Uh, and we only found this out uh, later on. So uh, he's up to no good, but we don't know the precise nature of So Nancy, the neutrality prosecution doesn't go anywhere, but at some point he's charged with something even more serious, which is treason. Who charges them with that? What's the definition with treason? And how does this legal jeopardy evolve? Well, the first thing I have to clarify is that what Burr was actually doing was engaging in a filibuster. And these were extremely common. In fact, uh, Alexander Hamilton wanted to support uh, Francisco de Miranda, who had this grand scheme of uh, basically organizing a filibuster into Mexico, and this is in the 1790s. Uh, this is how the United States acquired uh, Western Florida uh, during the War of 1812, because James Madison looked another way, and a Virginian engaged in a filibuster. This is how Texas acquired its independence, was from a filibuster. This is what Andrew Jackson did when he kind of goes into Florida um, and gets the support of John Quincy Adams. He's also engaging in a filibuster. What's a filibuster? Not what we think about where there's an effort to, you know, prohibit debate in Congress. It's a private army. And this is where the law is unclear because there is, and this is what John Wickham during the treason trial and the misdemeanor trial for violating the Neutrality Act brings up uh, this point that essentially it had been practiced and it continues to be practiced that during times of war, um, filibusters are permitted. Um, and now John Marshall doesn't end up supporting that, but at, at, during the treason trial, this is what Wickham puts forward. Um, and the other thing, we have to put this in even a bigger context because it's all about American Western expansion and expansionism in general. And land was prop land property was the major source of wealth. One of the things Burr does when he goes out west, he ends up investing in a piece of property. It's called the Bastrop property, um, and. Kevin is right. He's making contacts with a bunch of ex-senators and senators. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that all of these people are interested 
in not only filibusters, but interested in acquiring land from Mexico. And that's because both Jefferson and Madison and all of his supporters like Andrew Jackson basically believe that Mexico's weak. James Madison refers to it as kind of being a weak woman whose boundaries are permeable. And essentially, they believe that, you know, acquiring land by any means possible um, is, as, as Burr will say during the, the trial, where he admits that he was engaging in a filibuster, that it would be useful to the United States. Great. So thank you for defining that uh, unconventional understanding of filibuster. And Burr is engaging one, raising a private army. But somehow then he gets indicted for treason. Kevin, who indicts him for treason and what is the definition of treason? It's his old political ally and now enemy, President Thomas Jefferson, who ultimately commands that he be indicted uh, for treason. Now, we have to back up a little bit because we've talked about how we're a little uncertain exactly what Burr's intentions were. There was a way he could have used his private army legally, uh, but that requires there being a war uh, uh, ongoing. So so the Neutrality Act problem comes if you attack a a, a nation that we're at peace with. Well, he had a a co-conspirator in whatever the conspiracy was, a fellow by the name of General Wilkinson. Uh, Wilkinson is the military commander in New Orleans and the Louisiana Territory. Uh, Now, uh, there are other high-level people, but Wilkinson is key to this because he's got military and he's got to be the one who engages in the war with uh, the Spanish troops. uh, but that never happens. So the, 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 the Spanish troops come out of Mexico, but then there's some sort of stomach ailment or dysentery. They end up sort of retreating before any shots are fired. In the meantime, uh, Burr's uh, friend, Jonathan Dayton, who he had uh, a fellow Princetonian, uh, sends this letter to Wilkinson out, out, outlining uh, the, the broad strokes of what they're trying to do. Uh, and Wilkinson, now this is a letter that's under cipher, right? It needs to be decoded. And so it was it needed to be kept secret. Uh, Wilkinson gets cold feet. Uh, he's worried uh, about whatever they were going to do. He alters the contents of the cipher letter to take out any notion that he was responsible for anything. He sends that up to Jefferson. Jefferson declares Burr a traitor. Declares him guilty of treason. This is bo- this is the president of the United States um, saying that his former vice president is guilty of treason. There's not been no trial. In fact, the the grand jury proceedings that have been tried against him for other things uh, hadn't gone anywhere. Uh, and this is uh, this tells you that there's a lot going uh, there's a lot going on here. Nancy had mentioned earlier uh, the, the the letter uh, that er, er, that Burr had written to Theodosia about the jostling over who's going to hang. Uh, him, whether it's New York or New Jersey. Well, it's Jefferson who raises his hand because whatever Burr was up to, it almost certainly, uh, the the cleanest thing they could have gotten him for was a violation or or attempted violation of the Neutrality Act. Treason, uh, under the U.S. Constitution in Article 3, Section 3, it's the only crime defined in the Constitution and it's limited, right? It says that treason shall consist only of levying war against the United States or of adhering to our enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Now, what's, what's important is what that leaves out. Uh, it leaves out uh, things like compassing the death of the king, or um, it doesn't say anything about constructive treason, which will turn out to be a complicated concept. Uh, that's something that we can maybe get into a little, a little bit later. So to answer your question, Jeff, it's Jefferson who charges him with treason, and the idea is he's levying war against the United States. And so this then becomes a problem uh, for showing how was Berg uh, actually levying war. Wow. Well, thank you for that answer, and I have to give you a shout-out for— reciting the treason clause from memory uh, nearly word perfectly. That was incredibly impressive. I'm an Article Three guy, <laughs> Nicely yeah. done, sir. Well, also, you have to have two witnesses. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Two witnesses well, in open court right. to the same act. Right. And uh, since I actually have the text right in front of me, I'll, I'll read the second sentence. Uh, Kevin read the first one perfectly. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act or on confession in open court, the Congress shall have the power to declare the punishment of treason, but no attainder of treason shall work corruption of blood or forfeiture except during the life of the person attained. Okay, Nancy, there's uh, on March 30th, 1807, 
in the U.S. Circuit Court for the District of Virginia at a special session at the Eagle Tavern in Richmond. Aaron Burr is brought before Chief Justice Marshall to hear charges of treason and misdemeanor. What happens next and how does Marshall evaluate the treason charges? Well, I just have to kind of back up a little bit and mention about General James Wilkinson because where Burr's first accused of being a traitor is actually in the newspapers. And this is really important because – and it gets they're, – they're drumming up the same charges that had been used against him in the election of 1800. And there's lots of concern that Burr – that one of the other things is that he's creating a new political party. He's called, you know, emperor of the quids, which means thirds, that somehow this is going to break apart Jefferson's party. So there's lots of rumors. And in fact, in the Kentucky uh, – when, when he is uh, brought on trial in Kentucky, the editor of the newspaper that was spreading all these rumors has to admit that he didn't have any facts and he was lying. <laughs> so this is, the, this is kind of where and, – and even John Adams said that during the trial, one of the things that made Jefferson's declaration of Burr's guilt, where he said it was beyond question, was so wrong because John Adams referred to how there was a lying spirit at work. And this is the dangerous side that there were so many rumors – and misinformation. And then General James Wilkinson, he's the one, once he decides there isn't going to be war, and he's the one who pulls back from war, um, essentially he creates um, chaos in New Orleans. He starts arresting Burr's colleagues, sends them to Washington. He throws a judge in jail. He essentially wants to impose martial law. And he claims that Burr has an army of 7,000 that are going to descend on New Orleans. So he creates this atmosphere. Because what he has to do, because he is rumored to be a conspirator with Burr, he has to create Burr as, as the enemy to protect himself. Because Wilkinson, I can't go into detail, he has an incredible reputation <laughs> for violating the law. Eventually, he's going to be brought up in court-martial, dealing with the Spanish. Um, and, you know, I refer to him as a Machiavellian because essentially he is always trying to manipulate the scene. And he ends up manipulating Jefferson that leads to, uh, as you said, the march 30th hearing. Um, it's just last three days, and essentially John Marshall uh, Burr arrives with his uh, defense attorneys. At that point, Burr himself is acting as one of his defense attorneys, considered because he is one of the best lawyers in New York. Um, he is joined by John Wickham, who's really the most brilliant legal mind in Virginia at that time, and he has a lot of influence. I think, in shaping uh, Marshall's reaction to the trial and the proceedings. Um, and then he's also joined by Edmund Randolph, who had been George Washington's attorney general and secretary of state, and also was uh, you know, an incredible legal mind. Um, so during this initial uh, hearing um, in Eagle Tavern, uh, one of the things that becomes very clear is that with all these charges that there is an army and there are rumors the, and the rumors expand it goes from 7,000 to 20,000 this is what happens in Ohio um, so essentially one of the issues that comes up is if if it is an overt act of war you have to have evidence that this army actually exists and there ends up being no one testifying to seeing this army and when Burr is actually arrested and he's arrested in Mississippi Territory. He's discovered to have 100 young men and a couple of boats. And the boats aren't filled with arms, but they're filled with books. Um, so by the time it gets to Virginia, people are already concerned that this has – that Wilkinson – um, has drummed up a false, false alarm, that he's manipulated Jefferson, and it, it has created this environment for, that's, that sets up the treason trial and the prosecution feel that they've been put into a very difficult situation because of Jefferson's reliance on Wilkinson. So on April 1st, Marshall holds that there's probable cause for committing Burr on the misdemeanor charge for carrying a military expedition against the territories of Spain, but not on the treason charge. And then on May 22nd, the court term commences again. Grand jury is sworn. Marshall delivers a charge to the grand jury. And then there's a dispute about a subpoena. Kevin, tell us why Burr wants to issue a subpoena to President Jefferson and what Marshall decides about whether or not he can issue the subpoena. Well, Jefferson, remember, has already declared Burr guilty 
Burr wants to know what Jefferson knows. He wants to say, what was your basis for doing that? Uh, and and what, what is it, Mr. President, that you know? What are the documents in your possession? Uh, so some of this is building his defense. Okay, just what did Wilkinson send him? Because, for example, it turns out that the cipher letter version that was that that Jefferson received was altered by Wilkinson. Wilkinson and and, and almost goes to jail himself, or, or ends up uh, ends up in trouble himself. He escapes barely. Uh, so um, Jefferson has suggested he has knowledge of things, and he's the president of the United States, and he has special information, uh, and he's the one who ordered uh, all of this uh, to to happen. And we should also say that. Burr knew that Jefferson was behind the charges. You mentioned that, that there were two different charges, the misdemeanor uh, a violation of the Neutrality Act and then treason. Well, think about the punishments for a misdemeanor uh, versus treason. Treason was a capital crime. It was known as the king of crimes. A and the subpoena is in part to gain evidence. It's in part to continue the public opinion wars that are going back and forth. Nancy mentioned that uh, all of this started in the newspaper, some, some out west, and, 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 and there was a lot of angling for a public opinion. And part of the defense strategy, right, there's an, sometimes lawyers talk about in these high-profile cases, they talk about an inside strategy and an outside strategy, right? Your inside strategy is your legal one, the one that goes in the courtroom, the one that gives reasons that can show up in a judicial opinion or that a jury can rely on. The outside one is what shapes perception everywhere else. And uh, when Burr ends up in Richmond for the trial, the city of Richmond doubles in population uh, for this. This is the trial of the century. This is the, this is the, the young republic at sort of it's in crisis mode. This is not just a regular defendant, and it's not just a regular uh, sort of prosecutor. Jefferson stays in D.C. He doesn't come down personally, but he is sending very detailed directions about what to do. And this is really interesting because we talk about presidential power. The president has the power to pardon. Well, Nancy mentioned we need two witnesses and we need an overt act. How do you get witnesses? How do you flip people, especially ones who are conspirators? Well, what about dangling a pardon in front of them, a presidential pardon? And so Jefferson, uh, <laughs> he hasn't responded to the grand jury yet in, in our telling, and I'll get to that just in a second. Um, but one of the things he does is he sends down blank pardons to his prosecutor to, to use in order to gain witnesses. So subpoena comes in. What does he do to that? We know he's happy sending papers down. Uh, does he send down everything Burr uh, asks for? Well, he, he instructs George Hay, who's the prosecuting uh, attorney, to, um, to say no uh, at first. Uh, and then Marshall says, well, um, are you claiming privilege uh, or not? And you actually have to give me an answer um, before, right? You, you, you can't just say, I'm not allowed to issue the subpoena. I will issue the subpoena, right? So you can't stop me from issuing it. Um, and then you claim, if you claim privilege, we'll deal with it when you claim privilege. Uh, and there's this sort of delicate dance back and forth. Jefferson never defies uh, the subpoena. Marshall never has to enforce it. And for our listeners, subpoena is Latin for meaning under pain, right? Under pain of penalties of, of law. Um, and so he doesn't put Jefferson to the pain, right? He doesn't say you have to do it. And so each of them delicately avoid a direct head-on collision. But Marshall's reasoning about Burr's entitlement to evidence for the production, for the uh, development of his defense will become influential and picked up in, in American constitutional law uh, that's in, that, that matters to this present day. Thank you for that great summary. As you say, Jefferson and Marshall accommodated each other on the question of executive privilege. Jefferson never asserted that he could keep all documents from the court, but only those that weren't material. Marshall didn't say the judiciary had an absolute right, but that the executive could withhold certain information if it wasn't material. Nancy, tell us how, in what spirit, Jefferson turned over the material. I guess he never acknowledged the subpoena, but he did turn some of the material over. And how was that relevant to the case? And how did that lead to the to what came next? Yeah, I think that, you know, Jefferson 
was clearly working with Marshall on this, and it's odd because, of course, they hated each other. Um, they had had a long-standing dislike on a personal level, and politically, they didn't agree with each other. And at, by the end of the trial, uh, basically, Jefferson is going to be blaming Marshall for 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 you know getting Burr off the hook. So there's a lot of bad blood there, but but clearly they understand their official roles, and Jefferson in this instance, knows he has to respect the course. And Marshall makes it quite clear that this is, you know, essentially if Burr is convicted of treason, he can be executed. So this is a serious crime and therefore withholding evidence in this case um, is not to be treated lightly. Um, and the other thing, the bizarre thing about the conspiracy, I mean, of uh, the treason part of the trial, the other big problem is that the prosecution and the reason it ends up being tried in Richmond is because the prosecution decides that the overt act of war happened on Blennerhassett Island, which is an island that's part of Virginia. It's no longer part of Virginia. Now it's part of West Virginia. But essentially, this is where they get into a tangle because they insist to adhere to the terms of the constitutional terms of treason, that you have to show an overt act. They end up focusing on Blennerhassett Island. And the problem is Burr is not there. <laughs> he is not present. He's in Kentucky at the time. And when they end up, Jefferson is going to end up paying over $100,000 uh, to bring in witnesses for the treason trial. And they provide a lot of evidence against Harmon Blennerhassett, who was also put on trial for treason. But they get themselves into this bind because of insisting that on this location, um, and then they're going to end up changing gears because what I think is so fascinating about the treason trial, and this has to do with a, a, a debate that is waged primarily between John Wickham and then William Wirt, who ends up being added to the defense team, is that rather than focusing on the issue of the overt act, because they can't prove that without kind of rewarding, resorting to constructive treason, uh, they end up focusing using the rhetorical language about giving aid and comfort, which is really talking about seduction, which, and they, they go through this, uh, Wickham brings up all these old legal cases about, you know, wives in England taken from David Hume's history being convicted by relation, like a wife of a traitor can then be accused of treason. And then the even famous, the more famous part of the law that Wickham brings up is that under English law, that you cannot have sex uh, with a relative of the king without his permission. And if you do, you can also be tried for treason. So he brings up this, and this may be saying it's very racy, but he brings up the fact, well, that what if the person who is the co-conspirator happens to be a woman? Can a woman rape another woman? So they get on to, and, and the sexual language is not only met in fun, but it's raising this seduction issue about treason, and this is what's going to lead to the most famous speech ever given in the Burr treason trial, is who is Blennerhassett, which is by William Wirt, where he, can, he portrays basically Burr as this seductive Satan, and that Blennerhassett Island is like the Garden of Eden, and that somehow he seduced not, and there were rumors that Burr had seduced Blennerhassett's wife, but he had seduced Blennerhassett, um, that he was uh, Burr's puppet, because they have to say, they have to reject the idea that Blennerhassett is the main figure, and we're, you know, and it's, it's Burr who's really the puppeteer. But this whole rhetoric of treason really gets out of hand, where they have to, the prosecution's forced to make an argument really about constructive treason. They're forced to attack Burr's personality. They're forced to move away from the overt act of war to this idea of seduction, because, as Kevin mentioned, this is also a battle that's going on in, uh, that's being covered by newspapers, it's being covered in the press. Um, so who was Blennerhassett by William Wirt ends up being a speech that is respited by school children well into mm. the 20th century because it's a rhetorical masterpiece, but legally it's very flawed. <laughs> wow, I cannot wait to find it and to uh, recite it uh, uh, myself. Uh, Kevin, it sounds like the legal question at the center of the first part of the trial was should evidence unrelated to Burr's conduct on Blenner Hassett Island be excluded. And on, 
August 31st, 1807, Marshall delivered the principal opinion in the trial granting the defendant's motion to exclude all of that collateral testimony. Uh, tell us about Marshall's decision and, uh, and, and the fact that effectively it killed the treason indictment. The question that was addressed seems like a very narrow issue, right? What should there be other evidence uh, admitted? Uh, Marshall's, it was something like a 27,000 word opinion, a really long opinion. And he, he, he would deliver multiple opinions, uh, not all of them that long, thank goodness. Uh, but uh, he is pouring through uh, common law from England. He's trying to figure out how these different things apply in the different uh, legal environment of the United States of America. And ultimately, he says, look, you framed your indictment very specifically. He doesn't mention or he kind of brushes the, the fact that they framed it that way because of an earlier opinion he had uh, delivered in a case called Ex Parte Bowman. This was – Bowman was one of the people swept up by Wilkinson uh, and ultimately uh, brought to this – he had a habeas petition that was ultimately heard by the Supreme Court. And in that opinion for the court, Marshall gives really the first sort of – overlay on the constitutional definition of treason, uh, which it sounded like if if people assemble together, then anyone who conspires um, with them uh, in that assemblage of war is guilty. That's why Jefferson framed the indictment the way he, the way he did. Um, but Marshall then sticks it to him and says, that's how you chose to plead your case in the indictment. That's the only evidence that you're going to be allowed to present. They had a lot of other people. Uh, and the question was, was anyone going to turn on Burr uh, or was anyone going to testify? And, and they couldn't get anyone uh, to te testify to the overt act and they needed two, two witnesses. And legally, they weren't able to import this doctrine of constructive treason that – I'm going to oversimplify and just say, even though he wasn't there, he was part of it, and that should be enough. Marshall says, no, 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 that's not good either. This kills the uh, prosecution because there's nothing more to, to give to uh, the jury. Um, the jury then comes back with this really, really unusual verdict. Uh, and this verdict is one that is keyed right to the evidentiary ruling uh, and also to the indictment. And I think it's worth reading um, the exact thing because everyone's looking at this and, and saying, what does this mean? And they said, quote, Burr was, and I quote, not proved to be guilty under this indictment by any evidence submitted to us. Now, what's going on there? They're saying under this indictment, well, maybe under some other indictment, he is a traitor or uh, and under this evidence, maybe if some other evidence, if we weren't stopped from hearing it, right, maybe maybe he is. So, so Marshall gets this and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, well, I'm going to write that down as not guilty. So not guilty. Well, because Burr insists that he does it. <laughs> well, Burr is declared not guilty of treason, but he is separately tried for the misdemeanor of levying war against Spain in violation of the Neutrality Act. Uh, and that occurs after he is uh, found not guilty on September 1st and then indicted on the misdemeanor trial on September 9th. Nancy, I have to stop now to ask, why was Burr, a, f a former vice president, amenable to indictment at all? And does that tell us anything about the amenability of presidents or vice presidents to prosecution today? Yeah, I think this you know this issue obviously is in the news. But as I said, what is so striking is that after the uh, duel with Hamilton, as I noted, uh, both New Jersey and New York issue indictments for murder. Um, so they and they in no way think that even though Burr is still a lame duck vice president, that essentially he is protected um, from a state indictment. Um, and on top of that, what is what is interesting is that, you know, this is, as I said, this is why Burr kind of leaves New York even before the coroner's report comes out. When he is during the, the Chase impeachment trial, um, a group of uh, Democrats from Washington send a letter to the governor 
of New Jersey, that's Governor uh, Bloomfield, they send a letter to him uh, appealing to him, basically saying that this indictment um, is essentially ludicrous. I mean, it's ludicrous because, as I said, dueling was legal in New Jersey. Um, and it had only been pushed forward be, by some friends um, and supporters of Hamilton that they insisted on this indictment. Um, so there's clear evidence in this case that if you are that the states felt no sense that because he was still vice president that they should not indict him um, for uh, this crime. And he's also ends up, when New York decides to drop the murder indictment, um, they still indict him for violating the Dueling Act. Um, so I think we have to take that in consideration. And the other thing I want to mention about what Kevin Walsh mentioned is that what's so interesting, the reason that there's this confusion in the treason trial about what testimony should be, la should be allowed is that one of the major people to testify against Burr is a man by the name of William Eaton. His reports had been published in the newspapers, and he ends up being essentially made into a fool because he had been involved in his own filibuster, <laughs> uh, which is connected to the Tripoli War, um, and he comes back and he's demanding to be repaid money from the government, $10,000. And one of the things that Burr points out when he's finally brought to testify again, he's allowed to testify initially, and he makes these outrageous charges, not, not only that Burr attempted to separate the Western states and form his own country, of which an established monarchy, but he goes on to say that Burr was then going to mobilize an army that would invade Washington and is going to assassinate Thomas Jefferson. And then his response, this is why Wickham went after Eaton, his response was to say that, well, what was to go to Jefferson and say, well, give, give Burr an, a foreign appoint, appointment, you know, give him a high post to just get him out of the country. And then he makes some ridiculous toast against Burr as if that's going to stop all the things that the charges that, <laughs> that he's claiming that Burr is going to like kill Jefferson and create his own country and reestablish mo monarchy. Um, so this is where it becomes an issue, because the prosecution wanted to just repeat the same evidence that they had earlier, and they wanted to do it in a chronological fashion, and this is what Marshall says. He says, I'll let you present the evidence, but I'm going to have the right to intervene and say what, what is considered valid testimony and what isn't considered valid testimony. So with Eaton, he basically says, um, you know, you're not going to be able to claim that that, that Burr essentially was trying to assassinate Thomas Jefferson. Um, that's off the table. Um, and that's where you see Marshall taking a much more interventionist role in controlling what testimony, what evidence can be put forward um, in order to uh, limit the, the most exaggerated and the most outlandish uh, testimony. And with Eric Bowman, what's interesting about him is he's the one who who does get a pardon dangled in front of him. And this becomes a key dramatic moment where he denies the pardon of Jefferson. Um, and, and you know, everything seems to be going against the prosecution. They clearly, and then eventually it is uh, John Randolph who is on the jury and he calls Wilkinson a mammoth of inequity. Of, uh, of iniquity, because essentially he sees Wilkinson as the real power, the real person who is kind of behind this issue, and he can't believe that Jefferson has been fooled by Wilkinson. Um, so that's why, even with the, you know, the response at the end is that Randolph and the jury, they were thinking about indicting Wilkinson. That's what they really wanted to do. There was a vote on that, but they didn't, didn't get enough votes. But that they wanted to kind of uh, have him on the list of people who were indicted, not just Burr, not just Blenner Hassett and some of his other associates who end up being uh, part of the indictment. So we have these two final parts of the trial. There's the trial on the misdemeanor, which begins on September 9th. Marshall excludes the evidence that doesn't directly prove the charges related to uh, the Neutrality Act, and the jury returns another not guilty verdict within 20 minutes. And then finally, there's a motion to try Burr on another federal court on charges of treason, and on October 20th, Marshall refuses to commit Burr for treason, 
but orders him to stand trial in Ohio on a charge of preparing and providing the means for a military expedition against Spain. So, Kevin, just wrap us up about uh, what happened with that final charge, uh, why Burr was so easily acquitted on the Neutrality Act charge as well, and and basically uh, whether he was uh, got off on technicalities or, or might have been guilty of any of these charges. Well, this second phase, I think it's worth saying a couple things about. Uh, so the jury is constrained in, in, uh, on the Neutrality Act violation by the same evidentiary ruling as they are on the, the treason one. Um, William Wirt would later say that John Marshall came between Aaron Burr and death. Right, that that he would attribute this. You blame the judge. You lost your case. You blame the judge. Lending, well, we might not give that entire credibility since he lost that case. Although William Wirt was a big admirer of John Marshall, but also undercutting the credibility is this second act. So the government says, you know, while we have him here, we think we have a case against him in Ohio. Now, who's not in Ohio? John Marshall, <laughs> right, to, to preside over the judge. And, and Marshall says, yes, um, you do on this, um, on this further misdemeanor. And so his final act is to send Burr off uh, and say, yep, you're subject in Ohio. The administration, uh, for reasons I don't fully understand, they end up not uh, not pursuing it. Uh, perhaps, just a speculation, they kind of had lost the momentum. There was nothing to be gained anymore from it. Um, Jefferson comes out of this wounded. He seems uh, vindictive in certain ways, but in other ways, he comes out a winner because he's able to rally public opinion, not only against Burr, this traitor who escaped on a technicality, uh, as he would put it, uh, but also against this court, the court that twisted the law in in Jefferson's telling, uh, in order to embarrass the president. For Jefferson, uh, the personal and the political really merged uh, together. Uh, Marshall is not super popular because opinion breaks down largely along partisan lines. Uh, but sort of in the in the eyes of history, there are, and, and not just of history, but also of lawyers and law professors and political scientists analyzing this, there is a split of opinion as to whether uh, Marshall twisted things or whether he played it straight. And uh, the two competing things for folks who are interested, I think Edward uh, uh, Corwin is probably the, the one who treats the Burr trial as a blemish on Marshall's record. And Robert Faulkner's uh, response to Corwin on this point uh, is probably the best on the other side. And I have to cast my lot with Faulkner on this one. And just thought I'd share for how personal this trial was for all of these men, and they were all men, uh, th th they were strutting their stuff. Uh, the chief who was there presiding as a trial judge, because he was riding circuit and this was his circuit, um, he ends up, when you read some of these things, you can see, feel the humanity coming through judicial opinions, which you often um, don't um, see. But in one of the rulings, when, when, when he was, all this public opinion was swirling around, um, here's what he wrote in his opinion. And it, and it really gives you a sense of the struggle uh, that's there. And it's just rare that a judge lays it out so uh, cl uh, clearly. He says, that this court dare not usurp power is most true that this court dare not shrink from its duty is not less true. No man is desirous of placing himself in a disagreeable situation. No man is desirous of becoming the popular subject of calumny. No man, might he let the bitter cup pass from him without self-reproach, would drain it to the bottom. But he, if he have no choice in the case, if there be no alternative presented to him but a dereliction of duty or the opprobrium of those who are denominated the world, he merits the contempt as well as the indignation of his country who can hesitate which to embrace. He is laying it all on the line there. Uh, and for the judiciary, in the long term, the Burr trial is seen as a, a victory for due process, a victory for um, judicial impartiality, uh, and a victory for the rule of law. Uh, and it vindicates, in some ways, Adams, John Adams' criticism of Jefferson. Remember, this all began when Jefferson publicly pronounced him a traitor, uh, when John Adams had said, Mr. Jefferson has been too hasty 
even if his guilt is as clear as the noonday sun, the first magistrate, right, the president of the United States, ought not to have pronounced it before a jury so tried him. There was a jury trial. People fight about whether they were properly instructed, whether they got all the evidence, but uh, Burr uh, was acquitted of the capital crime. He still had to face things in Ohio, but the administration gave up on that. Thanks so much. That was beautifully read. And for the final round, I'm going to ask you, uh, Nancy, what are the contemporary lessons of the Aaron Burr trial? You and your co-author, Andrew Burstein, who's here in the studio, have an op-ed in the Washington Post today. It's time for Congress to take power back from the presidency and lawmakers should start by reclaiming the powers of investigation. Uh, you, you don't talk about Burr, but you do cite the example of uh, President Adams and others who Kevin just mentioned. If you had to extract some lessons from the Burr trial about uh, the amenability of the executive to oversight by the judiciary and Congress, what would it be? Yeah, I think that the the, the crucial issue was insisting that the subpoena uh, that required Jefferson to hand over these crucial, and then what he wanted was a letter from Wilkinson, um, this crucial letter that would have, was seen as, you know, supposedly Wilkinson providing evidence of this act of treason, but this was a very crucial letter. That essentially, in a, in a case of this nature, such a serious nature, where if Burr had been convicted of treason, he would have been executed, uh, that the president does have to uh, essentially uh, provide these, uh, provide this information, provide these papers. Um, and I think that is a, a really important point, that the fact that we have to realize that the president is not above the law. Um, and that this, this is one of the problems I think we face, which is very different from how the founders imagined the executive branch, because the founders were, were deeply concerned that they did not want the executive to have the same powers as a king. Um, and in fact, this is one of the problems we face today, because executive privilege really comes from an older tradition of royal prerogative that was granted a king. Um, and we've seen the increasing power of the presidency in the 20th century. And essentially, the founders, this is why Congress is the first branch that is established under the Constitution, under Article I. This is why Jefferson, when he is... Uh, Secretary of State under Washington defends the idea that Congress is a court of inquest. Um, so we have to take this idea, and this is the idea where John Adams is so central, this idea that the founders did want, you know, everyone sort of thinks this is a cliche, but this idea of a balance of power. And for Adams, one of the key themes that he said is that the executive, uh, that the powers that are shared, um, not only is it a balance of power, but there must be uh, a respect for moderation and humility. <laughs> when it comes to the exercise of authority and power. And I think this is another really important lesson, because even though Jefferson and Marshall are at odds, they don't like each other, they don't respect each other, essentially they know their official roles and they know the limits, um, and they respect those limits. Kevin, last word to you. What are the lessons of the Burr trial for battles between the judiciary and the Congress and the executive today? Let me start with the law professor point, which would just be just as a matter of the law of executive privilege. We will see the Burr uh, subpoena issue uh, cited as authority in the Nixon tapes case. And so uh, there's this legal point right? The, the, that the ability of a defendant to gain access to evidence for an ongoing criminal prosecution uh, is not trumped by a blanket invocation of, uh, of, ex of executive privilege. So that's the lawyerly uh, answer, and that's the sort of doctrinal point. I think more broadly, it's worth thinking about what lessons th there are for uh, judicial impartiality. This was kind of um, a set of differing kinds of enemies. Now, we've talked about the rivalry between Marshall and Jefferson, uh, but remember, Marshall was of the same school as Hamilton and Washington. He was a Federalist. Here, this is the man who killed uh, his great 
political ally, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and he has this obligation to be and to appear to be as impartial uh, as possible. That's really, really hard then. It's really hard now. Partisanship swirls around all sorts of things. It's not just independent courts that matter. Good lawyers matter. Right? Good lawyers making good legal arguments lead to uh, better outcomes for judges. Whether you think the ultimate verdict was correct or not, uh, the, the process mattered. And the idea that someone can, convicted in the court of public opinion of a capital crime can still mount an effective defense and live to fight if not filibuster, another day, I think is an important lesson uh, that still matters today. Thanks to both of you for your eloquent closing statements. And now, as promised, I have to uh, allow myself the privilege of reading the passage that Nancy mentioned. This is an excerpt from William Wirt's defense of Harmon Blennerhassett in the Burr trial, and I just found it online. Here it is. Who is Blennerhassett? A native of Ireland, a man of letters who fled from the storms of his own country to find quiet in ours. On his arrival in America, he retired even from the population of the Atlantic states and sought quiet and solitude in the bosom of our western forests. But he brought with him taste and science and wealth, and lo, the desert smiled. And yet, in the midst of all this peace, this innocence and this tranquility, this feast of mind and this pure ban banquet of heart, the destroyer comes. He comes to turn this paradise into a hell. Yet the flowers do not wither at his approach. A stranger presents himself. It is Aaron Burr. And then it goes on. Thank you, Thank you very much, Nancy, for having uh, called our attention to that uh, powerful piece of rhetoric. And now let me just say thank you so much, Nancy Eisenberg and Kevin Walsh, for a riveting discussion of the Burr trial on its anniversary here at the Constitution Center. It was synchronicity that brought you both here to have this debate in person. And I was so honored to be part of it. Nancy, Kevin, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Today's homework, dear We the People friends, identify who spoke this immortal phrase during the Burr trial, referring to Jefferson's pronouncement of Burr's guilt ahead of the trial. He has assumed to himself the knowledge of the supreme being himself and pretended to search the heart of my highly respected friend. He has proclaimed himself a traitor in the face of that country which has rewarded him. He has let slip the dogs of war, the hellhounds of persecution, to hunt down my friend. Wow, that is great writing. And if you can tell me who said it, email me at jrosen at constitutioncenter.org. Also, if you enjoyed today's episode, please come visit the National Constitution Center's exhibit, Hamilton, the Constitutional Clashes That Shaped a Nation. We highlight the clashes between Burr and Hamilton, as well as Madison, Adams, and Jefferson on constitutional grounds. And we have the writing desk on which Hamilton wrote The Federalist, as well as the original letters in which Hamilton and Burr establish the duel that led to Hamilton's doom. So please come to Philadelphia and visit. And if you're here for We the People podcast, uh, then let us know. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends. And always remember, when you wake and when you sleep, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and devotion to lifelong learning and superb live debates like this one. Uh, people like you who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support our mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. If you like today's episode, donate a dollar and let us know on the web that you've done so. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.